Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Andy Davidson has generated a very distinct philosophy for Nova, which has unique modeling in EIS for supporting companies from before day one. It's an interesting story about how he developed this idea, and we also talk about his research into the five common reasons that startups fail and how they can be avoided. We had such a great chat that we've turned this into a two-parter, so look for the second part as a bonus episode next week. If you like the podcast, then please give us a review with lots of stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on all good podcast players and services. If you want more information or you have ideas for future episodes, then you can email us at inquiries.harvardandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today's guest on the podcast is Andy Davidson, who is Chief Executive at We Are Nova. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. <laughs> Thank you. Great to be here, Brian. We'd like to start by getting to know a bit more about you. So can you please tell us how you became an EIS fund manager? Well, I, if I'm honest, I think it was more out of necessity than desire, really. Um, I mean, my background really is as a serial technology entrepreneur. Once upon a time, I was a software engineer, but it's been a long time since I've wrote any code in anger. And you know, I suppose for a long time, I've been involved in various manners with founding and scaling tech businesses. And I think a big problem, certainly in the UK, is access to capital. And I think that I'm interested in solving kind of systemic problems that prevent businesses from, from being successful. And obviously a, a big glaring one to me was access to capital. And I kind of realized that in order for me and for Nova to be successful, we needed to get closer to the money, if that makes sense. And the closer that you get to people that are running money, the more you realize that actually, if you've got a strong um, investment proposition, it, it's, it's actually better for you for you to do so yourself. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, the world of running a, um, an FSA regulated fund um, and you, you know raising capital and demonstrating track record and the legal structure of, of a fund management company is complicated uh, and it took us a while to kind of understand that space and hire the right people to allow us to understand that space but now we've done it we're glad we're here excellent and nova itself within the certainly within the eis space is a, more than a little bit different i would say can you perhaps yeah. tell us wh what nova does and how it works because it's as i say it's, a, it's kind of original setup I mean, we are very, very different, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that's a positive thing, and I'm hoping that time and evidence will tell it's a positive thing. But Nova are a venture builder, and that's an interesting niche of companies that are kind of the part technology company, they're part business accelerator program, and they, in many cases, are part investment fund. And venture building is, it's a form of applied venture capital. So if you think about what happens normally when you invest in businesses, and particularly in later stage, stage businesses, cash is not really a resource. It's kind of an accelerant, and it allows businesses access to the resources that they need in order to perform and scale. So very early in the, in the life cycle of, of companies, too much cash can accelerate the wrong type of activity. It's an accelerant and it can accelerate either good or bad. And with a venture building approach, you kind of cut out the cash and go, actually, what this business needs in order to go from A to B 
is this mix of resources, this mix of cap capability. And so rather than investing, I mean, you do invest cash in the business, but that's more to do with the mechanics of how an investment fund and how EIS and SEIS may work. But what you're broadly trying to do is take all the risk out of getting the right mix of resources into, um, into a startup company so it can achieve its objectives. And that's why people talk about it being applied venture capital. And so, yeah, Nova, Nova are, are a venture builder. Our particular model is called a co-foundry. And the reason for that is that we invest very early. So we co-found companies with founders that meet our criteria. We receive applications from about 40 potential founders a week. So we've probably got that dialed down a little bit at the moment. We can see well in excess of 2,000 founders in a year. And people who meet our criteria, we co-found a business with, and, and, we, and we do that at scale. So, you know, like last year, we co-founded more than 20, and that's where the foundry elements, like kind of the foundry element co-foundry comes into it. So, so these are guys, the people who come along, they've just got an idea. They don't really have a company set up or anything yet. It's, it's really at the idea stage they come and see you, isn't it? Exactly. And that's where we like people as well. We're, we, we kind of assess people on something that we, we kind of call founder problem fit. So what we're looking for is people that are, they've got deep experience of a particular domain. Um, I mean, our typical founder for us tends to kind of be late 20s to late 40s. They've worked in a particular industry for a long time or they know a sector particularly well. They have seen a problem um, in that sector or an opportunity they want to address or a status quo that could be disrupted. Um, by the way, there's plenty of status quos that need disrupting <laughs> our industry, but maybe we'll, we'll come we'll on to that later. We'll get to later. But, but, um, but, but, but then they, and they typically they understand the, the kind of current state of their market and what the to-be state is, and maybe they've got an idea of how to solve the problem or address the opportunity, but they're not totally wedded to that. And they've got good personal sales skills and they probably know who their first five to 10 customers are. So people that fit that bill, we're really interested in. And they've not started a company yet. They've not formed a team. They've not, you know, they, you know they're, they're right at the inception of the journey. And our kind of proposition to them is, look, we like we know all about zero to one in the startup space. We know from all about going from idea to you know, product with utilization and monetization. That's what we do. We know all about company formation, legals, access to finance, software engineering, hardware engineering, digital marketing, um, IP protection, you know, all of that. So we we kind of say to our founder, look, all we need you to know about in, in the, the, at the start of this journey is the market that you're trying to address, the problem that exists that you, you, that you, you know, that you're trying to address as well who your users are, like really who your users are. Uh, and if they can focus on that, we can deliver everything else into the startup that, uh, it, that allows it to become a successful business. And obviously we've been, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years now and we've had some, some, you know, some real breakout successes. So the fact that we have an EIS fund, it's a part of our business and it's an important part because it allows us access to capital to fund these businesses. But, if EIS went away tomorrow or in the next budget, we would find another mechanism to fund these businesses because the sector is so exciting. There's so much value to be created there. But at this point in time, SEIS and EIS is absolutely the most kind of economically efficient way 
of funding those types of businesses, both for the businesses, but also for the end investor. You know, if you get it right, if you give them enough portfolio spread and you're buying enough risk, then the tax relief basically I make it a no-brainer. I'm probably not allowed to say that, but you know. <laughs> I've got to say, I'm not the chief executive. I'm not the chief executive of, of, of Nova Growth Capital. I'm the, I'm the chief executive of Nova. So yeah, hopefully I'm less restrained by the FCA in terms of what I can say. So you mentioned about venture building and resources. What resources other than money does Nova actually bring to the table when founders are walking in the door? Well, as I say, I mean, all the money there, is there for is to pay for the team. So, you know, we look at, you know, if I look at, we employ about 100 people, and I think three of them are individuals that you would, categorize as financial services investment management professionals you know, they, they're the people they're the people who hold the cf you know the controlled functions within our fund etc and you know it's the very important but the other 97 people are the people who are doing the doing um you know they're, they're the people that are, that are ensuring that are, i mean you think about it we've got a massive pipeline of founders if we're seeing 40 new founders in contact by 40 founders every week so we've got a group of people that are working with those founders educating them ensuring that they are able to evidence towards that they've got found a problem fit. And we have a number of fits that kind of drive investment decisions for us. So we've got a group of people that, that are doing that. And a lot of that all comes from the lean movement. So we're big fans of the lean movement. So, you know, go, you know Eric Reese, yeah. Alex Ostervalde, Ash Moyer, going back to Steve Blanc. And actually, if you go back far enough to Taichi Ono and the Toyota production system, I mean, that he's probably the grandfather of lean, really. So we're big proponents of that. But then once we get into forming a team around a founder, if we decide to invest, product management is really important. You've got to have really strong product management to make sure you're building the right thing. Technology. So, you know, um, you've got to get a strong technologist involved, user experience design, you know, ultimately all products are experienced by the user. So user experience is critical. Brand, digital marketing, bookkeeping, legal advice. So within our team, we have either these, all of these capabilities, either in-house or we have general practitioners in-house. So from like a legal perspective, we kind of have a general practitioner who then sign posts to people externally who are, who are specialists. Same with access to finance, really. To give you a good example, it, it tells a good story. This So, because we're looking for a certain type of individual, it's important for us to work out where they hang out. So we kind of know where they hang out online. And we, we probably also try and work out where they hang, hang out in the real world. And we've done, we've got quite a lot of health tech in our portfolio. And one of the reasons for that is that we kind of seek it out. We know that medical professionals really meet our founder profile very well. So we'll often run kind of innovation discovery days with hospital trusts. And we did one a couple of years ago at a hospital trust in the Northwest. It's a specialist children's hospital trust called Alderhay. And we encountered a guy uh, called Dr. Richard Cook. So he, a um, little bit older than our normal age profile, actually. I think he's probably in his, in his, in his early to mid-60s. But he was in, head of, he's head of infection control at the hospital. And he kind of turned up and said, listen, right, you know, hospital contracted infections – um, the only thing that, that is a driver for them is hand hygiene, and it's only for medical staff. He's got all the data's there that it's not to do with visitors, it's not to do with how clean the ward is, it's all to do with medical staff washing their hands. And there's loads of 
data for that. And he's kind of gone like there's 400,000 hospital contracted infections in the UK every year. Tens of thousands of people die from them needlessly. And it costs the NHS. Pick a number that ends in a billion. And that's how much it costs you know, the NHS. And we're like, right, well, you know, this is a big problem. <laughs> it's a massive problem. <laughs> you understand it. You're the head of infection control at a children's hospital. He was kind of like, I don't know what it's called, but he was like chairman of the National Infection Control Society or as well, very well networked in his space. So we're like, right, you are a good founder. This is an interesting problem. So then we were like, right, well, Richard, you know, how, how do you think we solve this? And he went, I've got no idea. That's why I come, that's why I come to your <laughs> And then we're that's even no more interested then because this is like a blank canvas. This isn't cut some – if he'd come to us and said, well, we need to create a special tap, we'd have been going, hmm, do we? But he was kind of like, no, I really want to come on this journey where we, we we work this out. So we surrounded him, you know, with a product manager, lead software engineer, a product designer, so like a hardware product designer. So these are like Nova staff who you, these, so this product designer and software, these are Nova staff you sort of assigned Nova, to the company on December. Nova staff, exactly. And what we did is we we initially, and, we, and, and one of our kind of lean practitioners, so what we initially did is that, we, we created a user panel of all the different stakeholders and, and it's typically medical staff and really understood what their views were on hand hygiene. And, you know, you discover a lot about, you know, people, they just can't have anything that's going to, they're so busy, they don't want anything that, that intrudes in their day. They don't want to feel like they're being spied on. So we, we kind of spent a year with them. We, we really understood what the user's requirement was. And then we ended up building a prototype product. So our pitch to Richard was, look, you know all about this problem, but you've got no idea how we're going to create a product around it or a service and how we're going to monetize it. We're going to surround you with a small group of people. And within the first 12 months, we're going to get to the point where we've got a product built, we've tested it with users, and we've got some evidence of its efficacy. And by the way, you know, we're co-founder of the business, so we take a big lump of the business, we take half of the business. You know, so because we are as co-founder, we are not an investor. And of course, our investment fund actually subscribes to half of our entitlement in the business, if that makes sense. And that's what provides the capital into the business that's built out to pay for the, the four or five employees that work on it for a year. Anyway, 12 months or so pass, and we ended up with um, a solution where, you know, all medical professionals would have an RFID tag in the badge. They all, they all have that anyway. Um, there's a sensor that goes under the hand wash dispenser in the hospital when a medical professional depresses the plunger, the sensor detects it. It detects who they are because of their badge. It connects to the hospital Wi-Fi. All the data is aggregated. And at the end of the day, the clinician's got an app and it goes, how was your hand hygiene today? And you go, well, it was good. And the app goes, well, it wasn't really because you washed your hands 17 times and the average on your ward is 24. And the app, you know, so it, it's kind of got this, this educational carrot-like rather than stick-like behavior. So that, that product's been built. They've got patent pending around the IP and actually it's had its its first tr paid trial on one ward of a hospital which is £35,000 for a year trial so you scale that it's probably about £300,000 a year to a hospital it's really high margin recurring revenue if you prove that this works which probably will take another two years it becomes a must buy product for all NHS hospitals it's applicable outside of the UK and it's applicable in other industries like you know, like food, food preparation. So that's kind of an example of the journey a startup will go on with us. And at that early stage, it's not really about the investment terms or 
how the money comes into the business. It's, it's all really about assembling that appropriate team around that founder so that you can really discover the solutions, the problem, and the business model. Presumably, the, the terms are kind at that stage. You've just got standard terms, and yeah, there's yeah, no negotiation. It's, it's <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's a cookie cutter, and and we think it's fair, and it, and it's based around it's we're, we're co-founders. You know, you you'll, find, you'll get founders. It's interesting. There's almost like a bell curve of acceptance from founders about our terms. So people who know very little about venture capital or business formation, they accept it. People that know a little bit really want to negotiate with you and they go, well, 50%, that's a lot of equity to give away. And you know, and, and we, we talk through that with people. But what's really interesting, people who've been there and done it before, they just go, yeah, brilliant. Because they understand, they really understand the value that we're bringing because they've been there before and they know, they, you know, know, know the problems. But typically with founders that want to negotiate a bit, we're like, look, right, if you were to go and build to, to do this on your own, you've got to raise the money yourself. And to do that, you've got to have team. No one's investing in you without a team, which means you're going to have to go and hire two or three people. Do you know how to hire a product manager? Do you know how to hire a lead engineer? And, and these guys, why are they going to join your business that doesn't yet exist? Right? <laughs> the, only reason they, the only way they're going to do it is if you give them a big lump of equity. So let's face it. By the time you've given three people 10% of your business and raised some capital, you're probably down at 50% anyway. But actually what you've done is you've took a whole load of risk on because you've got no idea how to how to hire the right, identify and hire the right people. Once people have mulled that over a little bit, they're like, yeah, actually this is a really good deal. And what it means for us really is that we're buying pre-money at 300,000 um, pounds, which is cheap. You know, it's a, that's a really good price in the UK market. But we've de-risked the whole team element of that investment because it's our team. It's a known quantity. The team's worked on things again and again. We probably don't have the best team in the world, but it's a seven out of 10. It's so much less risky. Yeah, you're than, avoiding the three out of 10 that if you don't know what you're doing, you might actually get on board. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, the, the data I think in the UK is that one in three hiring decisions in the UK are a mistake, right? So that's out there. And that's amongst businesses that are hiring people for job roles, which they understand and are known. Imagine what the failure rate in hiring is in a really early stage business when you've got a guy who doesn't know what he doesn't know and trying to hire. So we mitigate that. We, so we buy at 300 pre-money and then parachute our team in. And we've automatically got a more valuable business because we've got a competent team that's executed before. Um, and and obviously because we're buying at that, our investment fund is buying at the same price. So our investment fund is buying really well. So you've clearly got a, a sort of distinct investment support philosophy. I'm, I, I hesitate to use the word purely investment because it obviously goes way beyond that. How did you develop that philosophy? Because it's it, it definitely is a distinctive within the EIS industry and perhaps generally. Like Nova does what Nova does, right? It's not been designed for the EIS industry. Do you, you know what I mean? Nova, Nova does, and I'll tell you about how we came up with it. But it's—I re- don't know whether tail wagging the dog is the right metaphor here. But but Nova's the dog, or EIS fund is the tail. It's the most appropriate way to fund these types of businesses, and I think it's really important for everyone to to keep that in mind. Our business is not about growing. If you look at a lot of other EIS managers out there, say they employ 20 people, they'll have 15 salespeople that are raising money and they'll have five people that are deploying money. And their end game is to get as many much assets under management uh, as possible and then probably sell it to someone else. Now, I don't know, I'm probably generalizing a lot there, but 
our aim is to provide is to raise enough capital that we can service the capital requirement of Nova's growing portfolio of businesses. And the byproduct of that is we've got an excellent portfolio that we know inside out that our investors will will benefit from. So I think it's like really important to understand that, that Nova Growth Capital is almost a sidecar to Nova's activities in, in a sense. Because that it's important to understand that because it throws the focus back on Nova and that's where we want the focus to be on, you know, because that's actually where all our values delivered. And we've spent, I mean, come back around to answering your question. I feel like I've spent the best part of, I mean, I'm 46 now. I feel like I've spent the best 20 years on this, iterating this business model in a sense. And Nova's approaching its seventh year of trading, but we were kind of raising small you know, um, business angel EIS rounds 10 or 12 years ago. That's where, how we were funding our first portfolio. But all of the philosophy became from Nova is all, you know, entrepreneur and execution led. It's all about our own experiences within businesses. The first business I was involved in, I probably was about 25 or 26, and I was still a software engineer. There was, I'll tell you a bit about my story, actually. It tells about how Nova developed really. There was, there was five of us. We were all software engineers. And I was the one who was prepared to go and talk to bank managers and customers and stuff. So I kind of became the person, I suppose, who was in charge of the business or thought about the business rather than about the products we were developing. And we quickly realized as a team that we, if we wanted to make a lot of money, we needed to build a product. And we did that. We built an e-learning product and it was aimed at universities and it's, we raised a little bit of early stage venture capital, about a quarter of a million pounds. And we got to the point where we'd sold this product to, you know, 20 odd UK universities on long contracts. We had, it was, it was a SaaS business before SaaS existed. SaaS wasn't a thing then. I think it was called ASP, Application Service Provision. Oh, I and remember all that. These, yeah, all these university IT bots were going, what, you don't want to install it in our server room? And we were like, no, we don't want to go anywhere near your server room. <laughs> <laughs> so... It was a bit ahead of its time in terms of its delivery. But, you know, we, we were monetizing. We probably had a quarter of a million pounds a year worth of recurring revenue. If I, if I picture that business then, and no one understood it, to maybe five or six years ago, we'd have been raising money at, you know, a five million valuation or, or, or higher, you know. And what was interesting is, is the shape of our team changed. So we went from having five engineers and five members of staff to having 20 members of staff, but still only five engineers. And we had a bookkeeper and we had a salesperson and a marketing person and we had a customer success person. And, you know, we had a project manager and the shape of the business kind of changed. And this was all a big learning experience for us. We did, when I look back at it, we did really, really well. We ended up going to the States. So I spent six months in the States. We had a burgeoning pipeline of US universities. We sold the product in California um, to Cal State University, which is like the biggest educational consortium in America. And then we ran out of money um, and went bust, which was a bit painful. But what we learned, I, I, like a week later, the core team, we kind of dusted ourselves down and we realized we'd, we'd achieved so much. We'd learned so much there. I mean, we'd sold a UK software product in, in California, which was we, we thought was a bit like taking colds to Newcastle, really. <laughs> and, you know, we... we yeah, exactly. So, so, and one of the things I realized was, A, I was nowhere near close enough to money. I was not well enough networked. I didn't understand how, you know, you funded businesses in the UK. I suppose, but at the point of when we failed, I think I was 31, but I kind of realized even when I was 29, I knew like one regional investment fund, maybe two, 
continuity of capital was a problem for our business. We were doing well, but we couldn't pull enough money in. So that became something that I was, became acutely aware of, that continuity of capital is important. The other thing I realized is when we look back at that business, we kind of failed because we actually didn't understand our customer bought. So we thought we had a sales cycle of about nine months, but actually we had a sales cycle of about 15 months. And we didn't understand, I don't know if you've heard, you, you probably had heard, heard, heard of uh, Jeffrey Moore and Crossing the Chasm and Visionaries and Early Adopters. There's like a whole psychological profile of how people buy and how buyers buy. We understood none of that. And, and the reason why our sales cycle was so long is we'd sold to all the visionaries and all the early adopters. And we were really struggling to cross this chasm and get the early majority to buy off us. So we kind of let, retrospectively learned an awful lot about that. And the other thing we worked out was that because you've got these lulls in activity, you've got your team idling. You know, they're almost at like 33% capacity or, or, or whatever. But you still need those people in order to look like a, a you know, it will not look like it to be a proper business. And you've got fixed cost. You've got this fixed overhead that you just can't do anything about. Well, sometimes you, presumably you do need to use, like, they are needed. Sometimes they will be running 100% and sometimes they're sitting and going, waiting Yeah, exactly. So you've got this invariant cost base and you're not in control of your revenue line. And that's difficult. And what we thought was, do you know what, right? We could have built five or six different products in five or six different sectors with that same team. And given that at that stage, it almost it, it, it is kind of risky. I probably would use a gambling analogy. We'd have been on five or six horses in a race rather than one horse. So after that happened, we, we kind of went again with the same team. We raised, I think I raised about a couple of hundred grand and it was EIS. And it, was, it was off a small cohort of angels. And over the next year, we encountered 10 founders that we wanted to back. And we started 10 businesses, serviced them from the one team. Half of them were hopeless disasters in this poor, small portfolio. <laughs> but one of them was a breakout success. It's a business called Centric Music that we've just now we've 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 we partially ex- exited a couple of years ago, and we just now exited totally. And it's like a dragon, you know. It's it, like it's. I think that I think when we partially exited, it was a forty times return on money, and now we fully exited. I've not done the calculation yet, but it's probably like sixty or seventy times return on money. But then you're a bit like, well, where are we lucky? You know, we we got one winner. Where are we looking? You know, and then, then you start looking at data within the market, and you know, I think you you you've probably heard me before, Brian, talk about what the UK market success and failure rates like, and broadly, ninety percent of tech companies don't get to year three. So we're going well. We're kind of bang on the money there. You know, we we've had one out <laughs> one decent one in ten. If we'd had naught, we'd have looked like a terrible failure. If we'd have got two we'd have looked like a massive success, you know. And thankfully, we kind of went again and, we, we you know, we, we've had some of the great successes along the line that's kind of proved our model out. But, you know, initially it was, it was there's got to be a better way of doing this. There's so much waste. You, you assemble a team of great people, you make a big bet on one product, it doesn't work out and you lose loads of value. So we were like, let's, let's be on multiple products. And then it was, let's use EIS to make sure that, the investor's downside is is mitigated. And then we kind of got into lean and thought, well, just because we can build a product doesn't mean we're building the right one. So we spent a lot of time working out how you make sure you build the right thing. And that, yeah, that's it really. And, and we've just gone again and again and again, and we've done, and we've, we've built 80 of these now. <laughs> so you had a bit of practice now. Yeah. yeah, no, we've it, had a lot of practice, yeah. And it, we've built a brilliant team. You know, have a look at, 
you know, if I look at the team, people that we've got around us now, just I, I can't talk about them all because there's hundreds of them. But the, but but between them, we've got thousands of years, collective years of working on creating digital products, whether they're hardware and sensors or whether they're software, and building business models around them. So we've got this massive tacit knowledge. And if I look at our leadership team, you know, I've got people like. Andy Speakman, who's our group CTO, he's our chief technology officer. So he was head of engineering at the Hook Group for the first few years. So obviously they listed with a five billion market cap the other week. You know, Andy was an early shareholder in that and designed out one of the leading e-commerce platforms in the world. And all right, he doesn't touch all of the companies in our portfolio, but the people who work for him do. And when they need his guidance, it is available. Our chief operating officer, Jason Rogers, you know, he's... Um, He's been COO at, at a hedge fund, at a couple of fintechs. He's listed two businesses on AIM. He's been through, you know, all of that time and time again. And he's like one degree of separation from our portfolio companies if his experience is required. I look at Darren Garling, who's our chief investment officer. Um, he's had a 25 year years experience investing early. And two of his career highlights, he, was, he did the seed round into a business called VitaFlow, which was a biotech that I think exited to Nestle for over a hundred million pounds. Like they backed that when it was two people in a garage. <laughs> and and he, he did that. And then also Blue Prism, um, which is a software robotics business in the Northwest of England. Darren led the seed round on that. Uh, they're currently, they're listed and their market caps $1.25 billion. So again, Darren backed that when it was a few people. So we've got a really experienced team in terms of, building startups from the inside out and experience in how you invest in them from the outside. And there's 80 companies have access to that, which is um, really yeah, quite cool in a way. The other thing is you just end up with loads of shared learning. You know, at the moment, I've got, I've got two um, health tech businesses that um, really different domains, different founders, but ultimately they're about listening to sounds in abdominal cavities. Now, they've each got their own IP. It's both protected in both of them. But the shared learnings of the team who've worked on that, they transfer into each business. You know, ultimately, you're listening to sounds, so you're creating algorithms that analyze sound waves, and you're listening and you're trying to work out where sensors need to go on abdominal, abdominal cavities. So it's just one clear example that, you know, where you benefit from that. It's quite interesting what you say about that with your approach, because I hear... I, you know, I, I keep one eye on Silicon Valley and you hear some of the fund managers there saying, oh, we wouldn't invest in a business that kind of conflicts with another one because we wouldn't want people, tr we don't want to be backing two horses in the same race and there's a conflict of interest and whatever. It, it's interesting that because some, some investors do take that view and some also back sectors and they go, we think this is going to be big. So they back everything they can in it <laughs> and then wait to see which one wins, you know? Um, I mean, the, the, the point about this though, is that it's a bit like, like, let me, let me explain. I suppose if I said to you, actually all of our backend tech runs on Amazon's cloud platform. So we've got an engineering team that really understand all about Amazon web services and that's transferable across all of our portfolio people would go, well, no harm, no foul. It's an externally consumed piece of IP. It's an ex externally consumed service. And if you've got an engineering team that learned how to use, I don't know, Elasticash on Amazon IT for one, one business and they applied it in another, there's no IP leakage there. 
so when does there become IP leakage? Do you, you know what I mean? It's like if you happen mm-hmm. to have an engineer that happens to have worked on analyzing sound waves in two different businesses, well, do you, you, you know, it's like when, when, does, when does something become commoditized and when does something become proprietary? And I don't know the answer to that. And quite frankly, there is a firm answer. Yeah, exactly. And quite frankly, we're not bothered. We know that we know that it it enhances the 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 chances of success for our portfolio companies. Now we could have an IP lawyer here going, oh well I'm not I'd just be going, well, I'm not going to say what I'd say. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, ultimately it allows us to really reapply knowledge you know, within our portfolio. And it's like another example that we've got, we're involved in a few fintechs. They've all got to go through the FCA sandbox. Mm-hmm. And the FCA sandbox is a regulatory nightmare. You get all your paperwork in order and all of that kind of stuff. Total pain. But once you've done it once, it's relatively easy to do it again. So we've been through FCA sandbox a couple of times. So now if we want to do a fintech, FCA sandbox, it's a breeze. Another great example, NHS What's it called? Data sovereignty and data governance and IP, IT, data security, all of that. You know, there's there are documents an inch thick that govern all of that for a product that's going to interact with the NHS. We've got about 20 health tech businesses. Once you've been through that once, it, it becomes easy. In fact, one of the guys who works for me, and he'll probably hate me for saying this, his name's Chris, and we call him Compliance Chris. <laughs> because he's a technologist and he understands all about the FCA sandbox and he understands all about all of the kind of like, you know, the regulatory requirements of, of, of any an, an NHS InfoSec. That is such a valuable thing to have that you can reapply again and again. And I suppose like, you know, I, I'm, this is why it's applied venture capital. And I, I, you'll have other fund managers that go, yeah, we're money and management. And by the way, I'm, I'm completely respectful of them. And great networks and they can introduce really good non-exec directors and they can open doors and stuff but they don't have compliance chris right do you do you, do you know what i mean they, they can they can really help a business from the outside but it's very difficult for them to help from from the inside and i think that's the difference i see a lot of variation in the market i mean there's a whole variety of approaches that people take i mean you're probably at one end in that sense yeah yeah and there are people primarily at a later stage who it's like well we'll we'll get the management information and we'll get forward reporting rights and really be quite relatively hands-off but there's a whole spectrum of people you know there's a lot particularly i I think at the smaller end investment people are closer to you in terms of they've got people who are active involved they've got people who are experienced northern years perhaps not the breadth of team but a lot of them have maybe one or two steps removed rather than within yeah. the direct team. Yeah. And that, you know, that, that's totally appropriate, Brian. I think, you know, one of the other things that you probably want to touch on or talk about is really, you know, people talk about the SEIS and the EIS space, but really what we're looking at, you know, we've got this AIM-listed mm-hmm. EIS-eligible companies, yeah. and then you've got things that someone just started yesterday that are SEIS-eligible. So it's such a broad spectrum of companies. And what, is a pro- the, the, the method of, I suppose, you managing, or maybe managing is not the right word, but gathering information on those businesses um, and reporting on them is completely different at different stages. You know, absolutely at the later stage, I think regular board meetings, maybe having some view on the appointment of a, of a financially numerate director, being able to look at the business from, you know, its financial reports, from its P&L and its balance, state, the balance sheet and its cash flow, that's absolutely that that's fine, you know, but 
how do you how do you understand the performance of a med tech business that's three years away from revenue? You know, it's it's balance sheets and PL are irrelevant. All you're interested in from a financial perspective is what does the cash burn look like and yeah. how much room have we got left? Can it get through to the next uh, yeah, milestone? So the next inflection point. And who's backing it? Are we backing it? Is someone backing it? And how long have they got to get there before they run out of money? It's just very different. And absolutely, it should be very different as well. And we find we get the most information transparency. Well, the most information transparency you can have really is by being in the business. Like our team are part of the business. And we mm-hmm. think that works really well for us. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely a very distinct philosophy. See, in your sort of documents and you have, you've you've kind of identified that five mistakes that companies make now i was going to come to these a bit earlier so we'll probably cover this fairly you've already touched on some of these but i, th- I think it's perhaps worth perhaps spending a few minutes on some of these because people i think will be interested in in what you've sort of identified and, and what you think about them so the first one that you sort of talk about is building something nobody wants so tell us what you mean by that and how Maybe how fun yeah. might avoid it. That is the biggest single reason for failure as well. Um, I think it's like 36% or something of, of businesses that have failed. They cite building something that nobody wants as the main reason. And it's all to do with something that's called founder bias or solution bias. So this is all pretty well understood in the lean movement. A lot of the solutions to these things are, can, can be found within lean. And what happens you know, a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of humans are innately problem solvers. What happens is, is that they solve the problem as they perceive it and the prob- the solution becomes their baby and they become very attached to the solution. So there's a guy called Ash Moyer and some of his kind of merch, if you like, he's a, he's a kind of leader in the lean movement. He's got one of the things you can buy is a T-shirt that just says love the problem because it's all about Forget about the solution, right? Because you're distracting yourself too much. It's all about the problem. So very often you get a founder that's very single-minded. He sees this view of the world and this problem that needs solving. And he doesn't really spend much time attempting to see whether that's everyone else's view of the world. And he comes up with a solution and becomes really excited about this solution. And it would be a bit like when we were talking Richard earlier. Richard had came to us and said, we need to build a special tap. We'd have been going, okay, that's a problem. Do we need, like, you know, that's an issue. Do, can we challenge him on that? Can we shift his thinking? Because he's already solutionized. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the phrase, the phrase that often floats around is you've got a technology in search of a problem. Um, yeah. Well, there's loads. And that, that's, the, that's one of the big, big issues. It's not with university spin outs. Like, you know, they, they've got some neat IP that's been put out. No one's quite sure what to do with it. Um, it was great in the research project. Yeah, exactly. I think graphene is, is, is the great example. You know what I mean? There's loads of things it should be able to do and could do, but no one's quite worked out yet. So, well, maybe they have, but certainly a couple of years ago, graphene was a great example of that. And then another thing that happens is that with a combination of lawyers, and lawyers are the root of all evil in this respect, and no one, people not wanting to be told the baby is ugly, people don't release early and often, they release late. So you end up with a founder going, well, I've, we've built 17 features but I'm not, I'm afraid I don't want to show it to my peers yet until I've built these next four. You, you, you know what I mean? And it, it, and what happens is you end up with release creep and you end, and people talk about, you get startups and they're in stealth mode, right? Now I would call bullshit on stealth mode, if I'm honest. <laughs> you know, and it, 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 we're in stealth mode. We don't want anyone to steal our IP. 
it's ridiculous. So you end up with IP lawyers going, well, you don't don't let anyone see it because then you can't protect it and someone might steal it. And then you've got the founder going, I'm a bit embarrassed about it at the moment. It's not all it could be, so I don't want to show it. So you end up with people spending a load of time building a product. And when people actually get to use it, they go, well, that's neat, but actually it doesn't do what I want. The way we deal with that is that you build user panels really, really early. So we'll have a founder come to us and go, this is a problem. I think we should solve it like this. And we'll go, just stop there, right? You know, so like in Richard's case, we'd go, right, okay, go and find us all the research articles that tell us about hand washing and um, you know, and hospital contracted infections and go and find us another 10 infection control practitioners in the UK that if we interview them, we'll articulate the problems that you're articulating in exactly the same way. And then you go, right, okay, who's the who's actually the end user in this? So it's a, what you're really trying to work out is that if your panel of users is articulating the problem in the same way as the founder, you, you've got something called user problem fit. And that, that's the first stage. And then at every point where you're trying to create a solution, you're always doing as little as possible. So you'll show people drawings of a solution. You'll show some the 3D model of a solution. And you're always trying to get this user feedback, whether the you know, the product that you ultimately build, you know, is going to be work, is going to work for them. I think like a great example of this, um, like Dropbox famously did this. So before they got admitted to Y Combinator, in case no one's familiar with Y Combinator, that it's a US accelerator program. They've created about $50 billion a shareholder. The most value. famous one in the world. The most famous one in the world, yeah. I mean, if we could be like Y Combinator, that'd be amazing. I think they do have the slight advantage of being in Northern California and having more money than they know what to do with, but let's set that aside. But Dropbox, they famously did this. It's called Fake It Till You Make It. Mm-hmm. So they famously created a web page that advertised what Dropbox was going to do and allowed you to sign up for a free trial. And of course, they'd never built the thing. And they had like 6,000 sign-ups on day one. And that was their validation that the file sharing problem existed and hadn't been solved. There's all sorts of other solutions out there, but it hadn't been solved properly. So you're always trying to do stuff that allows you to build user engagement as before you've built product and as you're building product and that stops you from building the wrong thing. And what's really interesting is that people on user panels, they become very engaged. The product becomes their product. It becomes their baby. They become evangelists for your product. User panels turn into customers. (laughs) (laughs) In the right panel, yeah. Yeah, and you can manage, you can you can measure traction all the way through. Just because you build, just because your engineering team go, right, the next release is going to be three months. You can say to your founder, well, that doesn't mean you sit around and wait for three months. You've got 40 people on your user on your user panel. Go and turn it into 120. And if your founder stops being able to demonstrate growth in user panel, you kind of need to start asking, why is that? Do we really understand the segment or do you, you know, so a, a really good traction metric is can you continue to grow your user panel while this while this product's being developed? Will people on your user panel refer you to their peers that they also think could use this product? If they will, it means they believe in it. If they won't, it means they just want to be nice and they're just paying lip service to you. So there's a, there's a load of work that we do around making sure we don't build the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the second one on your list is hiring poorly. And I think we've kind of discussed a fair th- amount about that. Yeah, hiring poorly and having the wrong co having uh, not having the right co-founders early on, it's the same thing, you know, critical critically in a startup. You know, if you've got the, the first the first four people, it, it's just they're absolutely instrumental. And I think as we've already talked about, it is so easy 
for teams to be poorly formed in the startup. And in fact, actually existing venture capital causes it. So no one will invest in a man with a plan, as, as it's termed. Everyone wants to see team, except for us, because we know we can provide team. So we're relaxed about it. The amount of like two-page investment teasers that fund managers see, and we and we get lo- loads of people don't bother researching us. They just think we're an investor and there's loads of stuff. You have like your two-page plan, and at the bottom on page two, you've got four mug shots of four people that are going to be the team. And when you scratch beneath the surface, you know, there's, there's a fella, there's his girlfriend's brother, there's a lad he used to work with four years ago who he's not seen since, and someone he went to school with his mate who's now a sock. You know, and they've never worked together. <laughs> they've all got jobs, but they'll all leave their jobs if this business gets invested in. And if you look at it from a risk, there's just, it's just, there is so much risk there, it isn't true. So that's a big reason. It, and, you know, co-founder conflict founder conflict we have we have a lot of conflict with founders it's it's just something you're going to have it's just part you're, you're doing something difficult it's challenging there's going to be disagreement it's a high stress situation and no matter how good you are in high stress situations i think at some point it's going to be just too much or you've got to let something out or whatever yeah totally totally and so that's why it's a big reason why businesses fail we deal with that by providing team so we have our culture in our organization, we have people that we've hired that have worked with us. We have our ways of working. And as part of our due diligence on our founders, it's can you work with us? Because we can't change to work with you, if that if that makes sense. Yeah. So a big thing for us is selecting founders that have the right attributes, personal attributes, to work with one of our teams. And that's how we de-risk that. Presumably within that, you'll come across founders who in – some ways would be a very good founder or might actually be a very good founder, but are just not suitable for the culture that you have. Yeah, totally. I and mean, we, we, we've taught, we've almost got this, this kind of internal analogy that's cropped up over the last few months because we're always talking about the driver for our business. We used to say better founders. You know, we can find better quality founders to work with. We'll have better businesses that become more valuable. And we changed that to the right founders. And someone came up with an analogy. It's like, well, you know, Will we go and get like a world-beating Silicon Valley founder to work with us? Would they work with us? Someone said, is it a bit like Lionel Messi going to play for Stoke? And forgive me if there's any Stoke fans listening, but that's what the person said. And I said, look, actually, it depends what game Stoke are playing that day, whether Lionel Messi is the best player in the world. If they're playing football, he probably is. But if they're playing rugby, then he's probably not. That's kind of our... It's we have a way of working. We know it works. There are other ways of working that also work. We need to find people that work, that play our game really and work for us. And if we do that, it de-risks, it, it de-risks that, you know. So number three on your list is failing to execute sales and marketing, which seems to me a very easy one to fail on. And, that, and I think maybe that reflects my personal weaknesses as much as Yeah, else. well, I think we, it, it depends on... Obviously, that's it's a it's a single sentence, and there's a lot going on with sales and marketing. <laughs> but our, our view on it early is, and there's a lot of evidence around this, is that people they don't understand how their buyer buys, and they don't understand Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm. They don't understand that someone you have a connection with who's a visionary will listen to your idea and go, "That's brilliant! I'll buy it off plan almost." but they represent like 6% of, of your buyers, you know? And what tends to happen is, is that entrepreneurs find these people out. They ignore people who say no to them. 
and they surround themselves with potential customers that say yes to them. So they, they kind of have this feeling that, yeah, we've made some sales and everyone's really into it. And then they tend to hire. So they raise money and they hire and they try and hire a sales team. Now, 95% of salespeople, they're doing repetitive tasks. If, if you look at all sorts of sales trains, some people are really naturally able to sell um, and don't under, I think if you look at solution selling, the court, he calls them eagle salespeople. So they couldn't actually articulate how they're able to sell. But most salespeople follow a repeatable process. They're given the key messages around benefits. They understand where the thing sits against competition. Do you, you know, they've got a process that they go through. In a sense, it's a numbers game. That just doesn't work early. And if you look, Steve Blanc calls what other people would call sales and marketing customer discovery. So in his book, Four Steps to the Epiphany, that I think he wrote in like 2001, he calls this out, like the idea of when you've got a new product, getting your first customers is not sales and marketing at all. It's actually customer discovery, and there's a wholly different approach involved. And we understand a lot about that. And I think our key thing is making sure people don't just scale early and go, well, I've made three sales on my own. If we employed five salespeople, you know, they'd each make three, and it just doesn't scale like that. And, you know, one of the things there is that, you know, if you've got, if you scale a sales and marketing team and they're making sales, that's the most, they're not making sales, that's the most costly resource in your business that just the purely expense and you're not getting any, any benefit from them at all, you know. So that for us, it's all about understanding that, you know, that kind of crossing the chasm thing, customer discovery and not scaling early. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like an extension of that product market fit idea where you're sort of saying, okay, we don't want to fit, you know, just just these three people. We want to have a a, a a bigger market that actually we do have product market fit for. Yeah, once you you know when you've got product market fit because you've got pull, you can't you start to not be able to kind of cope with demand. Like we know we've got product market fit for a certain type of founder because we don't do anything and we get forty applications a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, the final one in your list is chasing the investors, not the customers. Like continuity of capital is massively important to businesses, right? So founders need to have like we we fund short we fund short runways. Um, when we say we put a hundred thousand pound into a business and fund a four month roadway, it's runway. It's to do something specific, and mm-hmm. there will be metrics around it. And the founder knows that if we if they hit those metrics, we'll fund them again. And if they know that if they don't, then a conversation's to be had. So they clearly know what needs to happen next. Now, in a lot of businesses, that's just not the case. And I remember having these conversations early in my career going, yeah, well, we, I need 250 now. That's going to take me from A to B, but then we're going to need another half million. Can we talk about what needs to happen? And, and the, vent, the, the VC guy I was talking, it was, it was a bit, they're a bit guarded because basically they want to try and do as good a deal as they can. So they're a bit like, well, we'll, we'll talk about that when the time comes and that's not good really. It creates unnecessary uncertainty. What you really want is that your leadership team to be focused on progressing the business. But what so often happens then is that you've got the leadership team focused on court and investors. And like you know, it's commonly you read loads of stuff out there. The chief exec of a of a scaling startup should spend half their time talking to investors. And that doesn't make good sense to me to intend to work best for the business. Yeah. If you're at the point where you've got a team of 50 people 
and and you've got a COO and whatever, maybe that makes sense. Yeah. If you're three people and you're saying, actually, I'm going to take half of one person's time, that's kind of almost 15, 20% of your resources yeah, gone. Exactly. And it's, pro- and it's also normally your best resource. It's the resource that best articulates how your business works. It's the resource that should be talking to your potential customers. It should be out of the building, engaging with your users and your potential customers. Shouldn't be talking to investors. So a lot of that goes on. And then the other thing that happens is, is that once you've got some investors in your business, they've already drunk the Kool-Aid to a certain extent, haven't they? So, you know, you, it then almost, it becomes, if you're trying to keep your business alive, you, you actually, you, you've, you've almost got more control over selling to your investors, your existing investors, than you have to new customers. Mm-hmm. And that's why you end up with this terrible information asymmetry. You have board meetings where the management team turn up and sell to the investors and you're always kind of going up are we do we really understand the truth and you've got like i mean the mountain sat there's a fellow we used to deal with and i and he used to always want to meet me on a friday and i used to say is it going to be good news friday again <laughs> you know, and you have this this like you know sales pipeline of like 25 opportunities and we just you just go over the same ones every week but there was always when he spoke to me on a friday there was someone who was going to close next week and whether they did or some of them did, most of them didn't. But his whole focus of that meeting was to convince me that everything was was rosy. I think he convinced himself that everything was rosy as well, you know. So you do need a medal of delusion, I think, to be a founder. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, the people who are founders are a little bit mad. I mean, and that, that's just how it is. You know, they're disruptive. They want to change the world. They've got to have so much mental robustness. You, what? What? I can't remember who said it, but but what's interesting is early. One of the jobs of, of the CEO is actually the chief everything officer. I don't know if you've heard that before. He's not the chief executive officer. He's going to do everything. But the main job of a founder CEO is to run the reality distortion field. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's to make sure that the whole of the team believe in the project and what's happening, no matter how shit the data is or, <laughs> you know, or how, how adverse the conditions are. Mm-hmm. You've got to run the reality distortion field. So that's a big one. And I think um, we, we deal with that by, again, being in the business, knowing the data, having people close to the data who is not as emotionally involved as the founder, and funding short runway segments that, where the founder knows what, what success looks like. It's like, yeah, if you go and achieve A, B, and C, we'll, we'll follow on and give you another six-month runway. And that just keeps – we think that just keeps everyone focused on the right activities. Yeah, yeah. Presumably it's – challenging if you're working with funders who don't perhaps answer goal orientated where you suddenly got to figure out what is the milestone that i need to get to to get to to get the next investor interested and that that can be quite challenging if you're not used to doing that i would presume yeah yeah no definitely and you know we've done we've probably got 30 co-invests in our portfolio and i think sometimes that is one of the bigger things and it frustrates founders when actually you've got people who they see as being shareholders in your business that have, you know, the, the cash or the resource capability to accelerate the business and they can't actually agree on what good looks like. And it's normally for, you know, for again, for, it's almost like co-founder conflict, but it's not, it's almost like share stakeholder conflict. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you've just got two investors that are in that, that are a little bit, you're never going to have complete 100% alignment between two different organizations. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think that, that becomes a little bit of a challenge. 
I mean, the way I, I mean, the way the way you overcome it with bank people is doing multiple deals with them. You know, getting to know each other better, getting to know their investment strategy, them getting to understand yours. And I always just try and get back to to data really, and just trying to just trying to take emotion and gut feel out of stuff and go, well, look, rather than deciding on whether something is good or not down the line, why don't we decide what today what we think good would look like? And then we've got a framework to assess future progress in down the line rather than just, you know, someone turns up, they've had a bad day and they go, well, I just don't think that's good enough. And if you think on a good day, they would have gone, oh, yeah, that's made great progress, you know. So I think creating decision frameworks really is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. If people know where they stand or where they're going to stand, then that's a lot easier than just, as you say, turning up on the day and it's like, well. There is so much uncertainty and risk and unknown in a startup business that it's very sensible to remove as much of it as you possibly can certainly don't introduce any more well i hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as i enjoyed making it andy's really great to talk to if you want more then episode two where we turn our attention to the eis industry will be available as a bonus episode next week show notes as usual will be available with links at harmonco.com forward slash podcast if you like the podcast, then please give us a review with lots of stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on all good podcast players and services. If you want more information or you have ideas for future episodes, then you can email us at inquiries at Otherwise, thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.